Yeah, I'm calling in to leave a message for you guys' show. I just want to let you guys know that that, that Bob guy, your new co-host, is a lot better than the old guy you had on there. I also wanted to say, you guys said we're talking about Texas, and uh, Texas's last great running back was uh, Cedric Benson. He ran for over 5,000 yards, so they have that was a while ago, but they have had good run, uh, one good running back since Ricky Williams. Well, I'll talk to you guys later. Bye. Welcome to the Sports On Point Podcast, Episode 20. I am your host, Matthew Smith. And I'm Bob Williams. And I'm the guy pressing the buttons. I'm going to change my name this week. I am Pod Severns. That's P-O-D, which sounds like Bob, but it's not. It's Pod. Which leads me to the point that maybe we're not solving any problems here because Pod and Bob may just be equally confusing as Bob and Bob. But hey, we'll give it a go and we'll see how it turns out. For those of us listening at home, you were greeted by the lovely voice of our former co-host, John Zabarelli, in the opening there, uh, calling in to give us a little uh, admonishment for not mentioning uh, not mentioning Cedric Benson in our Texas running back discussion last week. But uh, that's all right. That's all right. We'll get it next time. Yeah, you know, I think he was actually trying to disguise his voice um, so that maybe it would sound like we got some real callers or something. I don't know. I might have believed that if it wasn't a Texas conversation. <laughs> right. You know that he was not going to sit uh, idly behind while we were talking Texas football. That's right. All right, we're going to move on to this week in sports. This is a section where we cover the top shared stories from the internet from every day of the past week, and our host will give a short comment on each of those days. Starting with Monday, Denver Broncos wide receiver Kenny McKinley found dead at his home. Bob? Uh, you know, this is just a tragedy in general, um, not not just in the sports world. Um, there, there's, a, there's a problem out there that, you know, people go through this all the time. Um, but, you know, they're, they're professional sports athletes. They have access to, you know, top-grade therapists. You know, there, there's definitely a network out there that he could have used that could have possibly, you know, figured out what was going on in his head, maybe not have had this happen. Yeah, I think the uh, Denver Broncos have become the official team to be linked with tragedy uh, with the passing of uh, uh, Kenny McKinley this year. Just uh, another in a list of, I believe, three in the past several years deaths uh, of, of Broncos players. It's, it's unfortunate to hear, um, but maybe maybe, uh, maybe this type of event can bring some attention to the fact that there are lots of people all across the country who are having these types of depression issues and uh, hopefully we can uh, bring some more awareness to this issue. Yeah, our hearts go out to the families. And on Tuesday, Michael Vick named the Eagles starting quarterback. What do you think, Matt? Well, we touched on this a little bit in the podcast last week. I think that if you are going to make Michael Vick your starting quarterback, he is a free agent at the end of this year. You need to sign him to a long-term contract because this team is going to adjust to the way that he plays the position and they're going to be in a world of hurt if he's gone. And they've got to uh, got to switch back to what they were doing before and, and Kevin Cobb's under center next year. Yeah, this just seems like they're getting into a world of trouble. Um, we talked about how they had a you know world-class uh, organization up there, but it just seems to be muddled and messed with this decision. Like Matt said, um, Michael Vick is coming up to the end of his contract, and he's going to get big money if his play continues. 
On to Wednesday, Philadelphia Eagles again. They hear from several teams about Kevin Cobb. Bob? Yeah, you know, that seems to be any type of um, interaction when it comes to sports, especially when the starter has been replaced. Um, I don't think they should actually go ahead and do it. I think Vic is just going to be, you know, a temporary fix. Doc Colbert's definitely going to be the future. Yeah, Kevin Cobb, I think uh, I think he's shown some things, obviously, in his workouts and in his camps that we haven't necessarily seen as the fans watching at home on television. There's a lot of, a lot of interest in him, and, and, you know, as we mentioned before, the Philadelphia organization has a lot vested in this guy. I would really be surprised to see him go, but... Uh, the interest is definitely uh, is definitely there, and uh, I'm not. I wouldn't be surprised if the Eagles are at least listening to hear what the offers are. On Thursday, Ichiro Suzuki of the Seattle Mariners is the first player with ten straight 200 hit seasons. What do you think, Matt? Well, I think this is uh, I think this is kind of a, a cool achievement here by Suzuki. I think it's a little bit tempered if you look at the times because we're not really in a we're not really in an era of baseball right now where we have a lot of good technical hitters. Uh, Ichiro is one of the few, if uh, if there are even any others. Um, a lot of the great hitters of previous days that, that had the type of skill to make these types of runs were either plagued by injury problems or just flat out didn't have a 162-game season to make those numbers happen. But uh, anyways, it's, it's definitely a heck of an accomplishment for Suzuki, and uh, I wish him congrats. All right, this is definitely a great accomplishment um, by a person who plays the game correctly. You know, with the, the home runs uh, era or the uh, Royd era, um, this brings the focus back to the pure baseball players of yesterday. And the funny thing about Ichiro is he's had comments about how he could hit for power if that's what he wanted to do, but they've never needed him to be that way. And on Friday, the NBA expands guidelines on calling technical fouls and cracks down on complaining. Bob? So I guess this means that Rasheed Wallace will not get to play a single game in the uh, playoffs this year. (laughs) But really, you know, nowadays there are a lot of complaints with it. It just seems to drag down the game. So hopefully this makes it go a little bit quicker. I think this is actually kind of a cool move because the NBA really has done this because fans don't like it. There's not really any on-the-court reason to do away with these complaining. It's just something that gives them a bad image. The fans don't like it, so the NBA is eliminating it from their game. If they make the same move with flopping, I think uh, they will officially become the most fan-friendly referee organization in all of major sports. And on Saturday, Cincinnati Reds pitcher Aerodis Chapman sets major league record with a 105-mile-an-hour fastball. Matt? I'm going to be honest with you. It actually surprises me that 105 mile an hour is a record for a fastball. I seem to recall a whole lot of hurlers, uh, closers specifically, that were topping over 100 miles an hour quite often. I'm, I'm a little bit surprised that the, the record is only 105. I think the uh, craziest thing about this whole stat is the fact that not only did he throw the 105 mile per hour pitch, each one of his 25 pitches in that outing was over 100 miles per hour. And routing the week off on Sunday, Hainsworth says his contract doesn't make him a slave to the Redskins. Bob? 
for athletes to, to use terms like slaves and soldiers, it, it's kind of controversial. Black athletes especially, you know. Um, yes. But, you know, you you sign a contract and there are expectations that are to be met, um, and they seem to take it out of context. Yeah, I, 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 I have a little bit of a problem with this because there are union employees, minimum wage employees, there are laborers all across this country who make so much less money and really act as if they are slaves to their, com- uh, to their company. I don't want to use the word slave in this term, but for Hainsworth to make this statement, it, does he really not think that he has to work to earn that $100 million, or is he just trying to say something to be controversial and, and uh, stir the pot? And now to our To The Point section. This is a section where we're going to have an open format chat that'll hit the main points in sports this week and allow for some flexibility and opinion. So let's get started. Okay, Bob, so the playoff races are really heating up. The season coming to an end within the next couple of days. Actually, when is the last day of the season? Sunday, October 3rd. I should probably know that. Okay, so we're down to the last two weeks of the Major League Baseball season, so I figure it's about time that Sports on Point spent a little bit of time talking about uh, all the races and, and the playoff battles that are going on. Uh, specifically, the National League, the National League West Division, uh, one game separating the San Francisco Giants and the San Diego Padres, and of course, the Atlanta Braves are sitting a half a game back or a half a game ahead of San Diego in the wild card race. Who do you think has the edge out west, Bob? Well, it's actually going to come down to the last uh, series because both San Francisco and San Diego are um, matching up together. So um, it is going to be in uh, San Francisco. So based on uh, you know home field advantage, I'm going to throw it out there as the uh, Giants. Um, probably have the uh, slight upper hand for the NL West. Yeah, I'll be, I'm going to be honest with you. These two teams are teams that are living and dying on pitching. If uh, if they plan on making any runs after they make the postseason, whichever one of it of the two of them that it is that makes the postseason, I I, I really think they're going to have to get those bats working a little bit more. The Padres, for example are 21st in the major leagues in run, 28th in batting average, on-base percentage 23rd, slugging percentage 27th. That's not exactly the type of offensive production that you would expect from a team that uh, is going to make any type of run going into the playoffs. Um, but b- baseball in general, you know, it's never been about the bats per se. It's always been about the pitching, like you said. So and these definitely are two of the better staffs. Yeah, I think uh, let me let me let me look at the numbers here real quick. But I think if you look, San Diego has scored 650 runs. The Philadelphia Phillies are 739. The Cincinnati Reds are 765. Um, granted, the Giants are not that far ahead of them. They're only 27 runs ahead. But uh, I, I look at these teams, either one, San Francisco or San Diego, if they make it into the postseason and they get matched up against the Philadelphia or a Cincinnati team, their pitchers are not going to be allowed to have an off night because their bats cannot make up for it. Yeah, no, that's going to put a definite tight squeeze on them. Um, and it, it seems like just based on the previous um, past years, it, it's been a run, we have to run through Philadelphia or we have to go through St. Louis, um, and those are definitely better offensive teams. 
and the uh, the Colorado Rockies, of course, have been able to put up the runs. Uh, but sitting five games back with this le- with this much time left in the season, I really don't like their chances much. No, they they'd have to win out and hope for the the best there that um, either San Diego or San Francisco runs the table. Yeah, the or you know they could sneak into the they could sneak into that that wild card spot if uh, if Atlanta falls off too and and they manage to finish ahead of them and either San Diego or San Francisco. But uh, yeah, just the NL the NL doesn't really strike me as a team. Uh, I'm sorry, the NL as a division is not one that I expect an exciting playoff from. We've got a couple of teams that uh, appear to be head and shoulders better as far as the records are concerned. But even just looking at Philadelphia and Cincinnati, Cincinnati has done a lot of beating up on some weak opponents. When they get to the postseason and have to match up against Philadelphia, I don't know that I don't know that Philadelphia gets a series until the World Series. I think I think it's going to be a, pretty much a, a walkthrough for them up until that point. Then when you talk about you know the American League on the other side of the coin, you've got the New York Yankees who's you know they batted in 833 runs and they're not even winning their division at the moment. It's a it's a half game lead, so that's really completely up in the air, but. Uh, not winning their division, and there's a chance they could finish third in the league. Third in the AL. Yep. There's a, there's a chance right now. They're right now they're uh, looks like a half a game ahead of Minnesota, half a game back of Tampa. Definitely, I think going into the going into the postseason, I can I, I I fully expect we'll have a much more exciting American League playoff than we will National League playoff. Um, It'll be interesting to see if the Minnesota Twins, as they put together an amazing record and an amazing season, as they seem to do with a lot of regularity. Best farm system in Major League Baseball, if you ask me. But uh, it'll be interesting to see if that record holds true and if they're able to hang with the Tampas and the Yankees, and for that matter, even the Rangers. Uh, they've got some. They've got some. Uh, they've got this pitcher. I don't know if you've heard of him, Cliff Lee. He can win you a few playoff games here and there. But uh, it'll be interesting to see if the Twins really have it or if they've just been the benefit of a really weak division with the Kansas Cities and the Clevelands uh, kind of rounding out the bottom. Yeah, it definitely doesn't seem like it's going to be a too strong of a Minnesota squad this year. But, you know, this is the magic. You know, teams are made in October. Through that, I'll tell you... As the as the major league season is kind of closing to an end, uh, this week kicks off the media days and opening of training camps in the NBA. And as everybody at this point is already aware, Carmelo Anthony trade talk is all a buzz. Uh, big news this week, or big rumor this week, is a four team trade scenario that will send Anthony to the New Jersey Nets and get them, I believe, Derek Favors and a bag of chips in return. Any likelihood? Any likelihood that goes down? What do you think? You know, honestly, why the Nets? You know, uh, yeah, they'd be trading favors. Um, I think Devin Harris would also be going around in the uh, trade talks. So you're you're going from a Denver team, which is a top three team in the uh, West, to a maybe four or five seed in the East. It just doesn't make sense, especially since Miami went and you know stacked their team this year. Um, so I think Carmelo's best interest is definitely to stay in Denver. Yeah, I, I, I think, uh, I think there are some places where he could go where it would suit him better. 
Um, the, the two places that come to mind, or the three places that come to mind immediately would be if they were able to pull off a swap for um, Andrew Bynum and Ron Artest, then Carmelo Anthony ends up as a Laker. That certainly, that certainly puts him in a better situation than he's in now. Um, I don't think uh, I don't think that trade's going to happen. Yeah. If uh, if they were able to get some package together that would put him in Chicago, I think that puts him in a better situation than he's in right now. I actually think that if you have a Chicago team with um, with the talent they've already got, plus you add Carmelo Anthony, and if they could somehow manage to keep Noah on their roster and coming in off the bench, he'd probably have to be involved in the trade in that scenario. But if, if they would somehow manage to keep that together, I think that's a team that actually gives a legitimate run to the Miami Heat um, in the in the uh, Eastern Conference. And if they play as a team well, could uh, could go in with the best record in the league. No, you said it right. Um, everything that I've been reading, and it makes sense that Denver wants Noah. Um, everyone else, dang, okay, yeah, he's he's a solid role player, but he definitely makes way too much money for the price tag of you know being a main piece in the Carmelo trade. Uh, so I, I really doubt that he's going to end up in Chicago just because of the fact of how much their front office does like Noah. Right, which it, to me seems short-sighted, but if you have an opportunity to dump a guy who is... I mean, let's face it, Joakim Noah is a role player. He's a, he's a gritty guy who gets you the boards, he'll throw the elbows, he'll take the charges, he'll get you some points in the paint, but he's not a prolific scorer. If you're trading that out for a Carmelo Anthony player who, you know, he's never been known for his defense, but he plays defense well enough, and he's he's one of the most talented scorers in the entire NBA. I think that's a trade. If, if I'm, if I'm uh, Jerry Reinsdorf, I'm I'm making phone calls every five minutes to Denver with a different offer, trying to get that trade through. I'm going to have to disagree. You know, it, it it's almost like common nature to never trade a big for a little. I know he's not a little; he's a small forward. But who does that leave Denver with, or not Denver, but Chicago in the middle? Did they resign Brad Miller? Yeah, they get uh, they got Carlos Boozer in there. Yes, because he's the center. I would, I would totally take him up against Dwight Howard in the in the East, and <laughs> and that's going to be a big thing because you know not only do you have to make your team with the best players possible, you have to make it as a team, um, and and I think that would definitely put them in a uh, problem area, especially with um, Boston getting Shaq, Jermaine O'Neal. Perkins is going to come back in the middle of the year, I think right around December. Um, so I don't, I don't think it would benefit them in the long, the long run to trade away a center. Like I don't know that they're, I don't know that they're any worse off with Boozer in the middle than they are with Noah in the middle. I mean, let's, let's be honest. Noah's not an NBA talent center, but he brings you defense he's and solid, he's going to be a big he's body. A, he's a solid power forward in the NBA, but as a, as a center, he's undersized and overmatched. So, so I don't know. Do I mean, I don't know that he's any different, other than other than the quantity, the fact that you could have both him and Boozer in the paint. Yeah, I, I, I don't know, man. That's that's just, that's just a tough sell for me. Fair because, enough. You know the the past few years, it's been Orlando and Boston that you have to run through, and I, I think both of those teams definitely in an interior would be a total matchup nightmare for that Chicago team. 
Well, I mean, I don't know that there's an I don't know that there's a team other than the other than the uh, well, the, the Orlando Magic. Whether anybody wants to admit it or not, are a complete matchup nightmare for the Miami Heat. So I, I don't know that Miami's really all that concerned about it, though. No. If you, if you have enough talent and enough and enough scoring on the court, I don't I don't know that the matchup problems become as big of an issue. If if you've got nobody down there to guard a big man and you don't have prolific scorers on your squad, then heck yeah, it's a problem. That was that was really what I ran what what we ran into in Cleveland with uh, with Orlando two years ago was that you know we didn't have a guy who could take Dwight Howard on one on one. But at the same time, we only had one guy scoring the ball, and it was pretty easy for them to throw everything they had. Whereas with a situation where you've got Derrick Rose, you've got Carmelo Anthony, you've got Carlos Boozer, you've got three guys on the floor at any given point in time that can score the rock, I think it, uh, I think it makes it a little easier to deal with a few matchup problems on the defensive end. I don't know. That's a tough chance to take. You know, just just me. If I was in an, you know, if I was Jerry Reinsdorf, that would that would be a tough sell for me. Um, just because you know, the past few years it has been defense that has taken you know teams further than anywhere else. Look at what Boston did last year in the uh, Eastern Conference Championship. They completely shut down Orlando. Orlando. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I. I... Don't get me wrong. Defense in the NBA is is a is a difference maker to say the least. And you know the the teams that play defense the best in in recent years have been the ones who've had success. And, and that's uh, what's what's hurt teams like Orlando this past year because their their defense was essentially one dimensional. They had good good low post defense, but uh, the perimeter defense was lacking a bit. Um, so yeah, I, I don't want to. I don't want to discount the effect that defense has on a team, but I, I just don't. I don't think. I don't think you can really build a roster around what it takes to beat one team in the Eastern Conference and be successful. I mean, Cleveland last year built their entire roster to run with Orlando in the playoffs, and they end up getting clipped by the Celtics before they can even get there. I think. I think it's a mistake that a lot of teams make to essentially build a roster to beat another team when really you want to build a roster that other teams have to make adjustments for. And I think that that's what you end up with with Carmelo Anthony on your team. I don't know. I I think the point in this is probably the fact that Carmelo is probably going to have the best chance to succeed in Denver. Uh, You know, he has Billups there if uh, Nene can stay healthy. Uh, It it just seems to be the West. You know, they were two years away from you know, actually being in the finals. So I I think it's a little bit premature on Carmelo's, you know, opportunity, you know, let him play through the year. If he doesn't do well, you know, if they don't, you know, win at all, let him go to New York. That's where he wants to go anyways. Yeah. Just a, he's he's an East coast guy. wants to go home. I, 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 I'm with you. I totally don't see a point in requesting the trade. Um, but uh, I, I think what he sees is he sees his buddies teaming up to make super teams, and he wants to go somewhere where he can do that. And I just don't think he thinks Denver is that place. On the on the flip side of it, however, uh, Denver did make a did did make a run in the playoffs the past couple of years. I just think that uh, I think that as a team, their makeup is a streaky team at. at uh, at its best times can can beat anybody in the NBA. At its worst times 
can beat themselves better than anybody in the NBA. And I don't know that uh, I don't know that Carmelo Anthony sits back and at the end of the day thinks that that's something that's going to take him very far. Yeah, you know, we we could be talking about a completely different scenario if you know they had a healthy George Carl on their bench last year. Who knows? You know, we can't we can't change that, but. I don't know. It just seems yeah. to be a very disheartening um, trend in the NBA of all these superstars saying, I want to play here, I want to play there. And, you know, it's it's a team, it's a business. Uh, you don't want all your superstars in one place because that leaves the, you know, the smaller markets with a product that really isn't going to be there. Yeah, all the old timers, too, are coming out and saying these guys have no guts. You know, they want to form these super teams and dominate and create dynasties well you didn't have these super teams you know back in the 70s and 80s which i look at 70s and the 80s as like the golden era of nba basketball you know and these guys are just looking at these superstars today and saying yeah you can play ball but you've you've got no guts you know and who wants to watch that yeah what have you done to earn that championship now I think I think it's actually kind of I think it's kind of interesting because in the seventies and the eighties let's not let's not let's not let's not look at it through revisionist glasses because in the seventies and eighties we did have super teams. The difference was that they were made honestly. The Lakers and the Celtics in the eighties were dominant. Uh, there was a few years where Houston, a few years with Philly, where they just had really really good dominant teams. But they did it the honest way by acquiring the occasional free agent, but mostly developing players that they drafted. Right. Now, that being said, I don't think that the league itself, the NBA as a whole, was any better in the 80s than it is now. I think that the 80s was actually a very good case in point of an era where all of the great players played on a handful of teams, and there were a lot of teams that were uh, just, just horrendous for an entire decade. And it wasn't until really after the Michael Jordan era that the NBA started having some level of parity again. And uh, unfortunately, with all these types of moves and these trade talks and, uh, you know, the, the collusion by the players to get all of them in one spot, I think is, I think is reverting back to, to what we saw in the 80s where you've got dominant teams and everybody else is just uh, teams full of have-nots. Well, the same way I think you said that you had natural... Um, super teams back then, you also had natural, or you had bad teams come through natural processes as well. Now you're getting the lack of parity through to like you, through things like you said, um, these backroom deals and guys talking and collusion and that sort of stuff. So I'm I'm okay with having a couple superstars on a couple teams if it's a naturally occurring thing because of markets and that sort of thing, but if you have mm-hmm. crap teams um, because of some backroom deals and buddy buddy relationships, that bugs me. And I think it bugs a lot of the owners. I know it's a lot of talk going into a possible lockout. Is how you know what what way can they get the power back into their hands uh you know maybe they throw in a franchise tag so you don't see all these super teams formed that way you know minnesota's memphis's of the world can keep their players or cleveland's of the world can keep their players and you know actually have a solid foundation or a chance to win definitely be a good thing to see well definitely um 
definitely the, the grouping together of the superstar athletes in the NBA is doing nothing to help the parity of the league. The the world of college football has seen a lot more parity in the last couple of years than it even knows what to deal with. And it's actually hoisted teams like Boise State into ridiculous preseason rankings um, with ridiculously poor schedules. Boise State this week knocking off Oregon State, um, their lone remaining quote-unquote difficult game. Um, does this vault them into a favorite for the national championship game? I don't, I don't think it does. Uh, give me a undefeated big team, you know, a big conference team, BCS team. Uh, pretty much it boils down to the same thing it's always done. You know, you take care of your business as a big school, you're, you're going to be in the conversation ahead of a Boise State. Uh, it's going to start getting a little um, choppy if you're talking about like a one-win SEC team because they've definitely played a better gauntlet of games. Um, I, I saw the fact that Alabama, say they were to lose one of their games and then you know go on to the championship game and win the SEC championship game, they would have played seven ranked teams. Boise yeah. State can only hope for uh, three, and that's if Nevada holds on and stays in the top 25. So, yeah, I, in, in that instance, I would totally take a one-loss one Alabama team over a Boise team. That being said, it is, it is way too early to go ahead and pencil in Boise State with an undefeated season. They've got, what, eight games left on their regular season schedule, most of which are cupcake games, I'll give you that. But don't pencil in a win in Nevada. That's a home game for a Nevada team that's looked very good through the early part of the season. If Boise State goes in there with an attitude which they've had in the past year, people seem to forget this. Boise State plays in a weak division, a weak conference overall, but they've gone into some games that they had an obvious advantage in. And they've, they've played down to their level of competition. It's happened. People like to ignore it, but it's happened. If Boise State plays down to the level of competition in Nevada, they will walk out with a loss. Yeah, for Boise State in, in that game, they're actually going to have to stop Colin Kaepernick, um, who's you know one of the definite better um, quarterbacks in the uh, college football this year. Agreed. Agreed. So, so let's not pencil them in with an undefeated season. And that being said, I, I think if you look at the schedules and if you wanted to go the route of predictive uh, you know, let's just say everybody's going to run the table. There's a possibility to finish the season with as many as six undefeated teams, and uh, a, a, a likelihood that we could see as many as three or four. If we do end up with, say, for example, a undefeated Boise State team, and then defeated either Ohio State or Alabama team, um, let's let's say for the sake of this argument that one of those two teams has a loss on their record at the end of the season. And let's say Oregon comes into the end of the season with an undefeated record. Does Boise State make the NCAA championship game or the BCS championship game over Oregon simply because they were graced with a higher preseason ranking and they beat a much weaker schedule than a team like Oregon? No, no, definitely not. Um, we know Boise State's schedule itself was a front-loaded schedule where most of the other um, – Teams, you know, their first four weeks, they have maybe three cupcakes or three weaker opponents, and they usually have one marquee game before they get into their league play. So, you know, Oregon still has Stanford, 
especially coming up this week. Um, you know, there's USC, Arizona, Arizona State. So they definitely have the quality opponents that would jump Boise State if they stayed undefeated. Sure. And I'm not even concerned. I'm not even 100% convinced that Boise State to this point has been any more impressive than TCU has. So even if we're even if we're talking about a mid-major team making a championship, if Boise State and TCU both go undefeated, what uh, I'm not sure what gives uh, what gives Boise State a, a, a advantage over TCU to get into that championship game, other than the fact that people know them more. That's not. That's. I'm sorry, but that's that's not how you pick a championship game. No. Well, you still have for TCU. You still have Utah. So technically, I think Utah and TCU could. Um, actually match up as a both undefeateds yeah yeah so that's that still would be out true there. did or did not didn't tcu already beat oregon state this year yes first Wasn't game that of the season. season opener so i mean even even if you look at this quote-unquote signature wins that boise state has at this point one of them doesn't mean anything because tcu put a whooping on the same team uh oregon state i think exists uh, exists this season only to booster the uh, claims of mid-major teams like these uh, like these guys. So I, I, I just the, the whole talk of Boise State frustrates me. It absolutely frustrates me because this is a team that would win maybe seven games if they played in the SEC. Um, you know they do. They fare better in some of the other conferences. I, I'm sure they could probably eke out. Uh, I'm sure they could probably eke out about nine wins in the Pac-10, uh, at least eight in the Big Big Ten, uh, probably another eight in the Big Twelve. Yeah, no, the the Pac-10 is actually tougher this year. So I don't know if you, they would get the the nine, maybe the eight, but yeah, maybe eight. Yeah, maybe eight. Cause Arizona's looking tougher than uh, than. Uh, Expected at the beginning yeah, of the season. Arizona State played Wisconsin tough last week or the week before. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. You're you're probably right. They probably wouldn't win nine in the back ten. So I think all this pretty much comes to the point that um, playoffs. It would you know yeah, pretty much relegate preseason stats to little to nothing because you have to have you know the winners of the actual conferences plus you know one or two at large. Teams, so at that point, um, you know, it, we wouldn't be talking about this so early in the season. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. Back to the point from last week. Let's not do uh, let's not do preseason polls. Let's not introduce any polls until at least the fourth week of the season. Uh, I'm definitely I'm definitely on board with that plan. If only we could get the people who quote unquote know what they're doing to uh, to realize the same things. So the. Uh, the, the beginning of the season has been a little bit unpredictable in the NFL game. Uh, we've got three teams left at this point, only three that are 3-0. and And I don't know if you were to take a running poll of any expert ESPN or, or Sports Illustrated analyst, um, I don't know if you would have had them particularly pick any one of these three teams to be 3-0. and uh, talking, of course, about the Kansas City Chiefs, the Pittsburgh Steelers, and the Chicago Bears. Are any of these teams actually legitimate 
playoff NFL football teams? I think just based on the past, we have to throw Pittsburgh in there, um, especially since they're doing all this without their starting quarterback. Um, we know Roethlisberger has a good rapport with Heinz Ward. Uh, Mendenhall's been rushing phenomenal through the first three games. So I, I think they'll be okay. Uh, when you run into Chicago, you have you know the lack of a running game. So, you know, Cutler's going to have to carry them. So we'll see how that plays when they go up against, you know, some of the tougher um, passing attacks. Will Forte come around, you know, to his last year um, stats? And then Kansas City's just an anomaly. Like, yeah, they played Cleveland and San Francisco. Neither of those teams are great. Um, I think the shocking San Diego win, you know, started off their season. It's kind of carried them along, you know, momentum. Um, but two of their next three games are against Indianapolis at Indianapolis and Houston at Houston. So those are definitely going to be tough games for them to win. I think it was your guys' predictions that they would only win win uh three games all season, they knew they just had to get them out of the way so they could just coast for the rest of the year. Right, yeah, Kansas City just got to just got to lose out the rest of the way. Yeah, it doesn't look like uh doesn't look like we're hitting our marks on the on the Chiefs. One thing I would I I, I want to point out is the obviously the Kansas City Chiefs have beaten some terrible teams. The San Francisco Giants, nobody thought they would be terrible at the beginning of the season. But uh, nobody ever really predicted them to be as bad as they've actually been. They've just been one of the worst watches in the entire league. But um, the Kansas City Chiefs, their passing offense is 29th in the league, although their rushing offense is first. Their passing defense is 21st in the league, although their rushing defense is 6th. You're talking about an offense that's one-dimensional and a defense that's one-dimensional. It's not going to win you a whole lot of football games, except with a little bit of smoke and mirrors, which, if uh, if you recall, in my preseason uh, predictions, I said if Kansas City wins games, it's because of smoke and mirrors, and I think that's all they're going to do. It's just they're going to do it a little bit better than uh, than what uh, what we predicted. They've been kind of the beneficiary of a really weak opening three games. I don't think there's any question about that. Bears also pretty one-dimensional, 29th in rushing, 28th in passing defense. So they've been living and dying by passing offense and rushing defense. And uh, I think Pittsburgh is the only one that's shown any balance at all, and even that's debatable because they are dead last in the league in passing yards. But as we know, they've had their starting quarterback out and their second-string quarterback out this week. Um, I I know we ragged a little bit on Mike Tomlin uh, in in weeks past about him being somewhat of of an overrated coach, but... uh, Winning the three games in the fashion that he has has been somewhat impressive. I will give him some credit for that. Oh, yeah, and he's definitely playing against you know Atlanta and Tennessee, who are two of the better teams uh, currently in the in the NFL. Even Tampa Bay is surprised at you know two and one. So, uh, as much as it irks me or pains me to say that they're a legit three and zero, you know they are. They're definitely a team to look out for the rest of the way. Absolutely. As, as they as they always are. I was going to say, I personally just think that we're seeing a way to uh, a lot of 8-8 eight and eight teams in the NFL this year. I think that the teams are going to end up where we thought that they would be, um, maybe with one or two games le- less or closer to that middle ground. I really think that we're going to see more parity because of this start than anything else because of this 
you know, aberration of a start. I don't think it's a real start. Some teams just came out ready to play, and some didn't. Yeah. Yeah, and the, the Kansas City, you know, they won two really weak games against uh, uh, against Cleveland and San Francisco. The, the win against San Diego, we like to give them credit for, but let's not forget that San Diego has not finished above 500 in the month of September in, I believe, six seasons. So they are notoriously bad at the beginning of the season. And uh, it doesn't get any more early in the season than week number one, and it's a seven-point loss in the horrible weather with San Diego, a known passing offense. Um, they couldn't they couldn't get the pass game going because it was pouring down so hard. So let's let's look at let's look at Kansas City's wins for what they are. They beat the Chargers in September. Everybody beats the Chargers in September. They beat the Browns. Everybody beats the Browns, and they beat the they beat the Forty ers who. Shoot, from what I've seen, I'm not sure that they're. I'm not sure that they're not the worst team in the NFL. <laughs> wow, I never thought I would have said that two weeks ago. The 0 and 3 teams are, are uh, Detroit, Carolina, Buffalo, and Cleveland. I don't think any of those are big surprises. But uh, yeah, just uh, like as you alluded to, Mister Pod Severns, I, I think that there's a lot of uh, a lot of middle ground teams in here, where uh, the rest of the season is going to be kind of fun because from here on out, you don't have any idea who the elite teams are. I don't know that I don't know that I can recall a team where uh, or recall a season uh, where three weeks into the season you have no idea who the elite teams are. No, I think that's a good team, you know, or a good thing for fans out there. That you know their team, even at zero and three, you know Cleveland, you know for us, they didn't really lose bad. You know they had leads going into the fourth quarter and then right. they just choked. Um, so you know it kind of gives almost hope that you know they can turn around the season because it it you know there isn't those you know elite teams or, or you know they're not too far back just yet. I don't know. I think once you get started. Once you start three to four games in the hole, I think it's just so much of an uphill to climb that it's just negative nilly syndrome sits in on everybody in Cleveland and around the general area. We're like, okay, well, maybe there's next year. <laughs> well, you can say I mean, the same thing for Detroit in that sense. Sure. One thing I will say, the Browns have played a terrible schedule so far. They they did look pretty impressive this week against Baltimore, a lot better than uh, I think anybody gave them credit for being in that game. But uh, I don't know how much of that is Baltimore just coming into the game thinking they had a guaranteed win. I don't know. You get Hillis to run, what, 144 yards, 150 yards against the Ravens um, defense? I don't know. That was a shock. That was definitely a shock. And it was also exciting for me to see that uh, he was sitting on certain someone's bench for the fantasy football league. Not that it did me any good in the long run. <laughs> I, I, I think our, uh, our, our promo that we did for the league uh, a few weeks ago uh, probably said it all uh, in reference, of course, to John, who was uh, co-hosting with me at the time, uh, when we said... This league is ready for the listeners to dominate because these guys aren't any good. Me and John rounding out the bottom two of the football league. It's just not been pretty thus far. Well, that's, that's why, why you trade John. Bobby, on the other hand, you, you, you might end up winning the opportunity to guest host the show, Bob. No. Oh. 
Well, that, that's... Granted, that's about the equivalent of penciling Boise State into the championship game at this point in the season, but hey, why not? Yeah, to, you know, our, our fantasy league, you know, I'm the only 3-0 team, but there's everyone nipping at my heels. You know, I'm not definitely comfortable with that at all. I'll tell you what, I have had some big-time opponents. I've had 314 points against me in three weeks. So I don't feel bad that I'm 1-2 at this point. So we'll see. See how it turns out. I I, uh, I personally think that uh, if I could actually make some proper roster calls on a week to week basis, I'd be in good shape. But uh, so far, I've I've failed on every account, and that that is why this league is ready for your fans and listeners to dominate. The team that's the real deal uh, looks to be the Senators. Those guys have over 333 points in three weeks and 267 points against them, whereas Bob looked like he had a couple cupcakes. He has 220 points against him in uh, three weeks. So, I'm sorry you couldn't bring it. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I, think the, I, think, uh, I think, Bob, I think the Boise State references are continuing. I think Bob's calling you out for, for playing a Mountain West. Right, uh, schedule. That's what I'm kind of thinking. We are uh, Sex Bob is uh, looking to be a Boise State. We are Sex Bob-omb. It's not Boise State. Bob-omb. <laughs> so, you know, it, it definitely makes that. it fun. Um, Clarifying that. Yeah. So, it, I, I'm just intrigued as the season goes along, not just for us fantasy footballers out there, but how how the NFL season actually develops what teams are going to, you know, come up, step up to the plate um, week in and week out and, and get the job done. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, we've had, we've had the running trend in previous years about uh, teams going from last place in the division to first place in the division. I'm wondering if anybody's going to do that this year. The most likely candidate, of course, seems to be the Chiefs. Um, I believe they finished last in the AFC West last year. Could be wrong there. Um, I know they didn't finish better than third, but uh, Kansas City uh, has got the, the best shot so far. But again, as we've said, 3-0, and I think, is a big-time tainted number. So I think that's going to do it for this week's show. We are going to be moving to a regularly scheduled Tuesday night podcast from here on out. So listen for the down, or I'm sorry, look for the downloads. Uh, coming a little later in the week from here on out, but we should be able to give you a little bit more coverage of the NFL as we are able to record once the games are wrapped up for the week. Sounds good. Well, this has been Sports on Point. We hope you enjoyed the show. Please send us your suggestions on how we can improve the show and comments to feedback at sportsonpoint.com. You can also call and leave a voicemail message at 646-39-POINT. That's 646 646- 397-6468. That's a wrap, ladies and gentlemen. Hope you enjoyed listening. We look forward to bringing you another action-packed show next week. As for now, I think it's time that we go get a goddamn snack. Yes. Hooray food. <laughs>